uh, 39 years old, his dad was 69, and he talked to his dad about what he wanted his life to be about. We talked about the very first few weeks we were together here, how when you're at that moment of life, when you're looking back over what life's all about, you know, what matters and what doesn't matter is easily distinguishable. And the difference between Carlos and his dad is when his dad now started to think about what he wanted his life to be about, and his life to be summed up about, his dad abandoned much of what he had lived for the 70 years he was on earth. And Carlos said, for 25 years, my purpose hadn't changed. There was no sense of, I wish I could do this over. I wish I had the last 25 years back. But his daddy, who thought that 15-year-old was crazy, because that 15-year-old had the perspective of the ageless one, the timeless one, had the wisdom that the father didn't. What we've been trying to walk through here and talk about in our time together here is, is how you can have a life that you don't wish you could do over again. How to live a life on purpose, a life that you won't regret, a life that is going to be increasingly full of meaning and purpose and significance. What we talked about last week is how we've got to get to a place in our conversation together where, where we've got to make a decision, am I all in or not? And we realize that there might even be some guys that are still going to be with us, we hope there is, that aren't all in yet. We're going to continue to watch us and hear what we say the sweet life is. Men who by faith, have gotten to the place where it's no longer about what we perceive as the best thing to grab in life, but we are, if you will, looking up to a Father that has revealed Himself to us and that loves us and says, we want to show you, Todd, the sweet stuff. I want to show you the abundant stuff, the stuff that makes life full. Now, don't hear me say the stuff that makes life prosperous, but the stuff that makes life meaningful, significant, and full. And that's what we're talking about right here because there's some stories in this room that are filled with some pain. And we're going to find out today that part of the reason that pain is there is because of what God is about in leading us to a sweet place, which is into his image. And we're going to ask you this morning, what we're going to look at this morning is if you believe that God loves you, if you believe that there's a father who wants you to have a life that is different, that over 25 years you would have to look back and change what it is that's going to ultimately shape you, this is what it means. All of us as men want to constantly improve. We want to go to the next level. Self-leadership is something that is a major market in our country and our world because all of us are wired to do better still. Many of us just try a different strategy that might give us more, more meaning or fullness in life. And what the Lord is saying is, I'm going to give you one purpose and one meeting, and then I'm going to constantly work you towards that purpose to excel still more. And that's what we're looking at today. But just as a fun way to get us started this morning... Uh, you know, I want to show you a little clip, just to let us laugh together. Uh, and you should recognize this, if at any time in your uh, last 10 years, especially through the 90s, you spent some form of your Thursday nights potentially watching a comedian by the name of Jerry Seinfeld and his friends go through life. And this is one little scene where, uh, where his buddy had just had a heart attack and was looking to change and looking to get better. And so there was the traditional way to go and get better, and then there was his buddy Kramer, who encouraged him to consider an alternative path for healing, a way to change, a way to get over the sickness that was in his life. And this is what they ran into. Check this out. <laughs> what month were you born? April. You should have been born in August. <laughs> Your parents would have been well advised to wait. Really? Do you use hot water in the shower? Yes. Stop using it. <laughs> okay. 
I'm off our water. Kramer tells me that you are interested in an alternative to surgery. Yes. Yes, I am. I think we can help you. See, unfortunately, the medical establishment is a business like any other business. And business needs customers. And they want to sell you their most expensive item, which is unnecessary surgery. Can I use hot water on my face? No. You know, I am not a businessman. I am a holistic healer. It's a calling. It's a gift. You see, it's in the best interest of the medical profession that you remain sick. See, that ensures good business. You're not a patient, you're a customer. And you're not a doctor, but you play one in real life. What about shaving? You're eating too much dairy. May I? I guess so. Mm. 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 Uh, you see? You are in disharmony. The throat is the gateway to the lung. Tonsillitis, adenoiditis is in Chinese medical terms an invasion of heat and wind. There's some hot air blowing in here. You know, I lived with the Eskimos many years ago, and they used to plunge their faces into the snow. Can it be lukewarm? Too much dairy? You really think I'm eating too much dairy? All right. It goes on for a while. The reason I showed you that is just obviously the lunacy of, uh, of, of looking to have uh, what was a heart condition for George be what moved him to a place of greater health. What's going to move you? And I would challenge you to consider that if you don't find the divine physician's plan to move you, whatever you choose is going to be ultimately as silly as that. Now, what we're going to talk about today is what changes us, what makes us become the healthy people that we really want to be. And we're going to walk through that together. Let me just pray with us. Father, I thank you for these men, the fact that we continue to be stirred to get up, to deprive ourselves of a little extra sleep that we might uh, be introduced to your perspective again, to renew and deepen our convictions, to give us energy on our journey and our path, or to clarify what path that is that we should consider or even begin to take. And I pray that you would move all of us to get more in to you, to move all in and respond fully to you, that we might experience the life that we're looking for. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know, uh, on the Dallas Morning News on Sunday, I very rarely get to read that paper uh, because I get up early on Sunday morning to spend some good time alone before I get to be with many of you. And then I get home and there's five or six kids and a wife and maybe a soccer practice or two that usually has got most of my time by the time I get towards the end of the day and get a good shot of Sports Center just to still my soul. The last thing I have much energy left to do is to read the paper. But there's always three sections my wife pulls to me before she throws it out. Uh, one of them is uh, the Today section, Texas Living Now, and uh, I always get to read that little Dave Barry piece. If you're not a Dave Barry fan, he's worth the price of admission on that Sunday morning edition of the Dallas Morning News in the Texas Living Session. This guy's just got always a great, fun perspective on life. I always read Dave Barry. I always like to read uh, the Parade Magazine, one section there specifically, just the questions that they ask Marilyn Voss Savant. 
If you don't know who she is, she is a uh, person who's um, just got an incredibly high IQ and, uh, and, and always answers questions that people write in to her. And I love to hear her perspective on life, where sometimes just the riddles and problems people ask her to solve, and I try and see if I could answer them or how I would answer them compared to this particular person might. And I always enjoy looking through the high-profile section to see what the Dallas Morning News is just kind of saying, this is somebody you ought to know about in your community. And uh, this last Sunday, there was a, an article in there about this, uh, the, the Dallas's uh, head of pediatric care. And uh, it was an individual that they basically said, this is a life. This is more than a kid's doctor, Dr. Peta. And in this article, as I read it, I was really struck by the fact that Dallas Morning News was, was just observing this person's life, this doctor's life, and the things that they said about her. And I want you to hear this, because if your life was going to be profiled, I'm going to tell you, I don't know what ultimately it would say about you, but if I, I think you would be pleased to ultimately have it say something like this. It's usually somebody who's been fairly successful in business or industry, somebody who's made some major inroads, or somebody who's been um, advancing some corporation's interest. It's interesting what they did with this doctor, and they really talked about the fact that this person's life was full. This person's life was a life that was lived on a purpose, that if we could all align ourselves with it, this world would be a better place. Let me just read you a few little paragraphs right here. Uh, one, one comment from the doctor at the beginning just says this, I, I may be still doing hands-on doctoring one day a week after I retire, but ultimately the main thing for me now is to give God space in my life so he can act and guide me. Not that he hasn't been acting and guiding me in my life before. Over the years, I've learned to be more accepting uh, that God does love me, and he does love other people, and we should all act that way, as if other folks mattered. We should remember this, that all people are loved by God. We can't give up on anyone, because if God created each of us, we'll all have dignity and worth. We can disagree on some of the details, but we have to accept that God created us and we've got dignity. And it goes through here and talks about some of the things that this particular uh, pediatrician did. And, and, and for instance, she saw that, uh, that there was a number of folks who would come through her office and she saw that they had more than medical needs. And so she began to introduce a number of things, including uh, would get volunteers to come into her office and, uh, and to read to the young children that were there, if their parents couldn't read to them, to teach those kids the value and joy of reading to give their parents a desire to want to learn to read when their kids' eyes lit up. And so she had volunteers who would sit in her office and read books to kids that were there and how that began to affect some different families. Talks about how she got connected with a part in the city of Dallas. It's called the Vickery area. And, and for years, it's been one of the major drains in the city of Dallas. The highest crime area in our city is, uh, is not what you would think maybe south of I-30, but where it is is east of 75, south of Forest and north of Northwest Highway, that little section right there, the Vickery area. What she didn't do is get some big program gone. She decided as one person, find another person, and the two of them would do what they could do. And she happened to hook up with a guy that had been there for some time, and the two of them thought, we can't do a lot, so let's just invest in one particular apartment complex. And they said, all we did is go in and try and develop relationships with people, begin to build some trust with them, begin to share with them some different resources that I knew about in the city that might help them in their condition, and then to begin to love and serve these people, not wanting anything from them but the opportunity to show that they matter to Christ. Talks about how this woman was not just... Uh, eager to serve others, though she was a person of some significant stature, 
but how this person always cared about those she shared life with. She didn't go somewhere to make a feel-good experience. She drugged that into her own neighborhood. And they've got comments from her neighbors, comments that say like this. She's the kind of a person that, uh, that allies, I mean, excuse me, that allays anxiety and meets people where they are. She loves children. She's a nurturing nature about her. That's why she's such a good doctor. She wants parents to understand how to parent the kid. She says um, that she's a patient person, optimistic. She sees everybody as her friend. She's dedicated, persuasive. I can't help but make my life better because I'm around her. And then she says, one person said, I've known her for a while, and I've always appreciated her generosity. And it talks about the time that uh, her husband, this neighbor's husband, was out of work. My husband lost his job in the late 80s, and Alice and David, our neighbors, would bring us groceries. I'd find them on my doorstep. Or she'd come over and knock on my door and say, hey, I'm going to Sam's. You can come and get what you want. Or I'll just bring back what I think you need. What can I get for your family? I'd tell her I didn't know how I'd ever be able to pay her back. And she'd say, you don't need to pay me back. Life is full of concentric circles. And if my life touches yours, let the ripple effect of that go out into other people's lives. And this whole article goes on. This is the Dallas Morning News just saying, this is a life worth following. And the key to this entire life is, is all wrapped up in one statement at the very end. And guess what it says? It's a God thing. It's not about me. Now, when I read that, I thought how incredible to have this testimony in our Dallas Morning News about what a life worth living looks like. And it's where we started our conversation a couple of weeks back. It's not about you. And when you see somebody who lives life that way, the world stands back and in a world that's full of incredible people and folks that make incredible inroads to success, the thing that makes a life ultimately admirable is a life that is conformed to this one image. And here's what I want to tell you this morning. I want you to imagine this, and it goes to our very first couple of points right here. I want to give you the kind of the blanks uh, together, and then I want to go and talk about them as a group. But I want to tell you that you've got the opportunity this morning to get in step with a God that wants your life to be the most incredible thing that humankind can imagine. I want you to think about the opportunity for your life to be what, uh, what you know, the he- you know, Heisman, who was uh, recognized, I forget his first name, right? it just eluded me, but uh, somebody whisper it. Jason Heisman? Jason White, no, not the guy that won the Heisman. The guy I thought was John Heisman. The guy that the Heisman Trophy was named after, that somebody just took, is it John? Yeah, I thought it was, John Heisman. And what they did is they sculpted this guy and a picture of this guy, and he's become now the paragon, the icon that the most outstanding football player in all of college football looks like. And I want you to imagine a trophy being made for what an outstanding life looks like and it being named after you. You can make a case that the Dr. Peta trophy would be handed out in the city of Dallas now for perpetuity that was given every year to the person whose life looked like a life ought to look. That's the first little statement right here. You were created. This is amazing. You and I both, but you were created to be the most attractive, glorious, awe-inspiring facet or part or piece, whatever you want to get, element in all of God's creation. What I mean by that is there's a lot that just makes us stop and just be shocked and awe. As a kid, I was always, uh, for some reason, was uh, just always taken by this, this thing called the Aurora Borealis. The fact that it could be night out there, but there'd be this m- somehow multicolored lights in the sky. 
this last summer, I had an incredible opportunity to be up in British Columbia for a few days. And I was sitting out at this place that shut the electricity off at 10 o'clock at night. And I was sitting out there in this porch, and I looked up, and I knew I was facing the Yukon. I knew that all that was out there on the other side of this mountain range up in, in far north British Columbia was just ice and Antarctic. And all of a sudden, it looks like the county fair is, you know, about 10 miles on the other side of this mountain. I'm thinking, what in the world is going on over there? And I, I started to think, is it like an oil rig? Is there some drilling going over there? And then I saw it, the light move, just jumped over here. And then I saw it shoot up over the sky, and I started to go, that's the stinking northern lights. And I was with a couple of guys. I go, look at that. You know what that is? We're getting to see this. And I mean, for about three hours, you would watch this stuff just dance all over the sky. It would shoot up over here, lights out of nowhere. Just the magnetic response to what was going on with the, you know, um, the shape and the curve of the earth and what goes on up there and all that different stuff. And I sat there, and I was just amazed at both its beauty and the wonder and the mystery behind it. When you guys see certain creatures in, uh, you know, out in nature, they're just awe-inspiring. When you see mountain ranges, when you see a beautiful sunset, you and I just go, man, that is awesome. The God that made that is awesome. And what I want to share with you this morning is that as, as taken as we are by elements like that, do you understand that what God wants is your life to be something that people stop, they run up against, and they just go, wait a minute. I cannot believe what I'm seeing here. This is so contrary to anything that I would hope to hope to see that would be this beautiful, this powerful, this compelling, this challenging. That's what God wants you to be on course towards. And to get to be that kind of person that there would be, if you will, a Heisman made after you that others would say, this is the most glorious thing that a person could be. Now, ultimately, all you're going to be is a representation of what it is that God wants to make us like. Just flip over your little sheet right there, and there's a couple of verses I want to show you. Now, there's a great little verse in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. It's not down there, but you're pretty familiar with it. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And it talks about what it means to have a relationship with your Father. It's not something you're going to earn. It's something you're going to receive. It's not something you're going to try. It's something you're going to accept. It's a gift that you've got to take. And upon taking that, though, it goes to verse 10, because we talk about how grace is what allows us to be his child. But then it comes back in verse 10, and it says, once you become his child, you are his workmanship. That word is literally, you are his masterpiece. There's only one thing in all of God's creation that he said, let us make this one thing in our image. In the image of who I am, I want to create humankind. They are going to be our masterpiece. If you think the northern lights are awesome, if you think it's amazing to watch a, a whale breach, you know, I love those Pacific Life commercials. I've got TiVo at my house. I put that sucker on pause, and I go frame by frame, and I think to myself, how can that animal get out of the ocean like that? Is it just having fun? You know, did it hit a needle and it's getting out of there? I don't know what it's doing, but it's amazing to think how that happens. And I just get filled with awe at that. God says, you could, as much as that's impressive, I want humankind in right relationship with me to be the thing that makes everybody just stop and go, man. Now, look. Probably most of us have moments in our life when somebody goes, that was awesome to watch. But God wants us to have more than moments. You know, here's, what, here's the vision I want to give you guys. Can you imagine, for those of you that are married, can you imagine your wife anxious to let you fall asleep first just so she can sit up on her side of the bed and stare at you amazed 
amazed at the goodness that God has brought into her home. And just look and go, I cannot believe that this man serves me, that his life revolves around honoring me and cherishing me. I, I am overwhelmed as a person who's got to live these 70 years because for 30 to 40 of it, this man's life is all about serving me. Can you imagine that? It'd, it'd probably freak you out if you wake up and your wife's looking at you. All right? What are you looking at me? Take your clothes off. All right? You know, I, can, I can make you appreciate this, right? But the point is, that's why I love men's breakfast, all right? You won't hear that on Sunday morning. (laughs) Wake me up, woman. Don't stare, all right? Can you imagine your kids, all right, every time they're asked who their hero is, saying, you want me to do the game that everybody else is doing, you want me to look you in the eye and tell you you what my hero is? You wouldn't believe my dad. You wouldn't believe the way this man loves me. You wouldn't believe this care for me. How about coworkers? How would you like for all your coworkers to say, you know what, there's a lot of guys who make this thing tip, but there's nobody in our office that brings the component that this one individual brings. I've never seen anybody be so other-centered, so caring, so loving, so helpful, such a servant. I mean, I'm telling you, this guy being around us, I, we just can't even describe you what it's like to have him here. Can you imagine having a life that's so outstanding that your enemies are ultimately silenced and that all who criticize you are known by the world to be fools because of the integrity of your life and character. That's the vision you've got to have for your life. That's what God wants you to have. You know, a lot of folks, you know, at different times, for different reasons, say nice things to me. And I I do. I dream. I purpose to have my wife to be able to go, listen, thank you so much. But if you knew the half of it, you don't know the half of it. You just get to see this part of Todd's life. I, I wish you knew how much this, I wish you knew how great it was to be his wife. I, I thank you for encouraging me with what you see out there, but you don't know the half of what this man's like. Now, she's never done that. Okay? I, I don't, to my knowledge, she hasn't. All right? But, uh, you know, I, I just, one of the things I love to do, you know, with my kids, is I love to say to, to my kids a lot, I'm so glad that I'm your dad. And I love it when they say back to me, I'm so glad I'm your Alan. I'm so glad I'm your Cooper. You know, I am firmly convinced that no man will ever rise above the opinion of their children. I shared that in here before. No man will ever really rise above the the folks in their life that know them best. What I want to share with you this morning is that God wants to put you on a course that isn't crazy. And that if we become this, you will be a masterpiece of what human life should look like. And people are going to say, I am so glad I'm your friend. I am so glad that my life, by some incredible act of grace, is in your gravity. How about that? This is what it says right here. It says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. He wants you to be an individual that becomes increasingly like Christ. That's the goal. Always being ready to explain to somebody why your life is like that. Dr. Peter, why is your life like that? Because it's not about me. Because by the grace of God, I came to understand understand that people need more than physical healing, that people need physical healing because they value to God. Why? And then she can go on to explain that. It says, when you answer, do it with gentleness and respect, or gentleness and reverence, this translation says. And it says, and keep a good conscience, have integrity in your life, in, in 1 Peter three sixteen now, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, it says, those who criticize you, who revile your good behavior in Christ, we put to shame. Plato was a guy that used to say, the way you deal with your enemies is to live your life in such a way that all who speak ill of you will known to be a fool. 
That's 1 Peter 3.16. Look what it says in Romans chapter 8. Right there it says, we know that God works all things together for good. That's the purpose that we're going to focus on this week. God is working everything in your life for good. Why? So that those who love God, to those that are called to his purpose, for those he foreknew, for those that he called, for those that he predestined, that they would be made into the image of his son. Now this is why I said what I said earlier. God said, let us make man in his image. God said, I want man more than anything else to carry who I am with them everywhere that they go. God says, you're my masterpiece. God says, there's a problem in your life that got you off course. As a result of that, the scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What that means is that all of us have had the the, the glory that God embedded in us and intended for us to reveal has been in some way defaced. Now, it hasn't been erased in anybody that is a human, but it's been defaced. And you and I can all look around, and at different moments, we would look at our life and go, man, in that particular action, in that particular response, in that particular priority, Todd was less of what the glory of God intended him to be than I've seen in quite some time. There are some people whose life is an ongoing display that they don't look like what God intended them to be. They're crass, they're selfish, they're self-willed, they're perverse, they're destructive, they're angry, they're deluded. And we just go, that's a tragic life. Everywhere you look, the concentric circles around them of destruction, angst, bitterness, hurt, pain. And you just go, man, the glory of God is not on that person, and God's calling them back. And see, each of us at different moments throughout our day, maybe in our life right now, you might go, you know what, I've fallen short of the glory. Here's the point. The Scripture says all of us, have fallen short of the glory enough that we've offended God and we need God's grace to allow us to be restored in a relationship with him through which he will begin to make us to will and to work towards his good pleasure. And God says, I want to bring you back to the full glory with which you intended. I want to make you my masterpiece. What, how will that happen? The answer is, he will conform you into the image of his son. That's what he wants you to do. Why in the image of his son? I thought it was about becoming like God. Why? Because the scripture says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? You look at Jesus. He is loving. He is compelling. He is non-compromising. He is focused. He is servant-minded. He is other-centered. He is joyful beyond circumstance. He is hopeful beyond the moment. He is kind. He is full of self-control. He could surround himself with his enemies. One of the most amazing places in all of Scripture was in John chapter 8 when Jesus said, look, why do you hate me so much? Why do you criticize me? He's in a room full of enemies and he says, who here can convict me of any wrong? And guess what their response was? Silence. Why? Because Christ was a masterpiece because he was a man that was fully man and fully God that became all that God intended for humankind to be so that he could pay the price that fallen humankind could not pay. And he was, 1 Peter 3.16, embodied. That those that criticized him or reviled him were put to shame. When it came to the thing that, at the very end of the day, the reason they didn't like Christ is because he confronted their sin and pointed out to them that they needed a Savior. And they didn't like that. And what the Scriptures are saying is that Jesus, it says in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. What I want to share with you this morning is that God wants you to be that too. Now, how's that going to happen? It's not through the latest self-help book. It's not through a New Year's resolution. It's not through a working up of emotion and discipline within. 
It's through something else. Flip back over. And this is the point. Second set of blanks. Becoming like Christ, gang, is about transforming your character, not your personality. It's about making you in character like Christ was. Uh, There's a guy that recently came into a relationship with Christ that we know. And one of the things that he said as soon as he became a follower of Christ, I wrote it down because I thought it was great, because now that I trust in Christ, I am afraid that I'm going to be boring. I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my drive. I'm going to lose my ambition. Will I still be funny, he said. And it was, okay, the awkward part was to explain to him, you know, you've never really been that funny. <laughs> but, you know, if you thought you were funny, yeah, there's no reason to stop being what you thought you were. <laughs> All right? But the point is, what I want you guys to know is that Christ doesn't want us to become a bunch of zombies, to isolate ourselves, to walk in some sterile way where we all think we look like somebody else. No, listen, Christ created you just the way that you are. He made your uniqueness, and the last thing he would want you to do is to destroy that uniqueness. One of the reasons that the scriptures are so stinking different is there's 40 different authors that God worked perfectly in them to produce a perfect book. And yet you'll find that they write very differently. Why? Because God allowed them to to keep their characteristic and their nature, but he just ruled their nature to produce something that only he could produce, which is a perfect, infallible, inerrant, timeless, infinitely true book. And see, that's what he wants to do with you. God is not about jacking with your personality. You understand that? The worst thing that I could do is try and become, you know, and I look at certain people. Um, I, I, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody here, but sometimes guys that are just a little bit more soft-spoken, quieter, that um, aren't uh, bent as towards uh, feeling like they need to speak into a moment or, 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 or encourage people in a, in a way that you might see in a little more public way. I sometimes so admire that in somebody else's life. I go, I wish I was that gentle by just nature. By personality. You know? But, you know, the worst thing I could do is go, God, why don't I look like that? He goes, because I'm going to make my masterpiece known through you, Todd. This is the kind of work of art I'm doing with you. I painted myself in glory through this guy in this unique way. You let me glorify myself through that work of art that is that person. You make sure that, that what you do is you make the canvas of your life available to me. Don't paint it some other way. Let me paint your life the way that I wanted your life to be. Understand this. God made you uniquely. And when he makes you like Christ, he doesn't want to jack with your personality. He wants to transform your character. Do you understand the significance of that? You can be who you are. You should be. Can you imagine how foolish it would be if uh, a, great, uh, a great piano virtuoso uh, heard a testimony of a guy that was a, a godly, devoted uh, follower of Christ, who was a great athlete, and he said, okay, I'm going to follow Christ, so I've got to become a great athlete because that's what that follower of Christ is. It's crazy. Now, you glorify God with your instrument and your musical gifts. Let this guy glorify God with this gift and who you are. Look at the third set of blanks. You will never be, though, God. As we talk about the fact that you're going to be transformed or conformed into the image of Christ, don't hear me say that we want you to be a God or become God. You will never be God. It was the original lie. That's why I put Genesis 3-5 right there. 
It's the very first lie that was sold to man. You can be a god. You don't need God. You can do what you want when you want and control the environment and the universe that's around you. You were not created ever to be God or a God. You were created to be godly, not become a God. God wants you to become like him, not be him. Understand that? So what are we going to do about that? How is that going to become a reality in our life? And the answer is, we're going to purpose ourselves to align ourselves with who Christ is. Look at this next little set of blanks. Growing older, gang, is not the same as growing up. Now, what do I mean by that? Growing older is not the same as growing up. This is not going to happen through some, uh, some process that, that will be miraculous to us. God wants us to participate with him to allow our lives to be transformed from whatever glory is there in its defaced condition to a greater glory as we partner with him. Let me give you the next blank. I want to talk about these two for a second. It's a spiritual myth that, that if you just want to be godly, that's really all God wants. How many of you guys, when I sit there and gave you that vision of what, how great it would be? Because I'm going to tell you something. There are guys in this room... There are certainly guys that fill this room up on a regular basis that have had incredible success in the world who have never had a woman look at them and marvel at the greatness that is their life. They've had all kinds of women exploit them and use them to get some things that they wanted all the time resenting who that man is. But there are, there are a lot of guys that, that when I describe to you what it would be like to have a woman so appreciate who you are as a person and create that vision all of us want that. We would imagine that in some former way that our children would speak of us that way, that those that know us best would speak of us that way. And isn't that the question you always ask people that know somebody personally who's great? What's he really like? See, it's not enough that we as men in this room say, I really want the people that know me best to speak well of me. Your wanting to be godly is not all God wants. God wants us to participate with him and do the things that will lead to us becoming who he wants us to be. You will be, gang, what you are now becoming. You realize that. You will be an increasingly fit person or an increasingly uh, you know, unhealthy person based on what you're doing today. You will be what you are now becoming. You know, We hear as kids, you are what you eat, garbage in, garbage out. And that is exactly true with our spiritual life. You will become what you meditate on. Some of us spend three hours a night watching TV and three minutes a day reading the Bible, and we are, for that reason, more conformed into what TV is projecting than what we say is what we want to become like. The Lord wants us to become like Christ, but it's not going to happen by osmosis. We've got to participate in him and discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. If you want to just write down those two little sections right there, you'll see that. First Timothy, well, you've got the verses. First Timothy 4, 7 and Philippians 12, uh, 2, 12 through 13. In fact, I want to read the Philippians verse because this is very key. If you'll just turn over and look at that Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, it's right in the middle. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, watch this, work out your salvation. Now, this is very important. I want you to draw a line around what I've already blackened right there. Draw a circle around it and put a line up and write down. It doesn't say, it doesn't put down, not work for. See, it's very important. Not work for your salvation. But it says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, there's a lot at risk here, gang. 
For it's God who is at work in you if you have by grace received that relationship with him. He indwells you and wants to produce in you something great and glorious. And his masterpiece is at stake. Can you imagine being one of the children of Leonardo da Vinci? And everything you did was to walk into his studio and throw paint on Mona Lisa. Or to doodle on the Lord's Supper. You go, no, it's the last thing you'd want to do as da Vinci's son. You'd want to help him in every way he can create a masterpiece. And God's saying, there's a lot at stake here. The reputation of the artist is in your life. And God rewards those that help him make masterpieces. So you work out, participate with the grace that's there in your life. You work that out with fear and trembling, knowing what's at stake. Because if you jack with God's name as an artist and what he creates, there is an accounting for that. But if you partner with him, you'll never stop marveling at the goodness that he puts in your life. It doesn't say work for your salvation. Why? Because salvation is a gift by grace that you receive. It does say respond to it and work it out well. All right? Now look, there are four great sources of revelation. In other words, there's four ways that God shows us truth. Write them down. The Word of God, number one. Number two, other people. But if another person tells you, I've got a word for you, this is what God wants, the first place you go to check it out is where? God's word. And if they ask you or encourage you to do something that's contrary to God's word, you can be sure that whatever God's revealing to that person is not his will and way. Now, sometimes they might say, hey, I really believe that this is something you might consider. And you want to confirm that on your own, even if there's not something in chapter and verse that can direct you from God's word. And God sometimes uses others around you. For instance, there are some guys that would tell you that, man, I really have a desire to have a teaching ministry. And other people need to come around you sometimes and say, you know what, there's a lot of ways you can serve the body, but every time you teach, people have a tendency to not show up, to nod off, to fall asleep, to, to move away from you. That would be my experience if I tried to sing to you guys. You go, Todd, let me just speak into your life. You might consider another ministry form, all right? It's not the way God really apparently designed you. It's not being affirmed through other people. Thirdly, through circumstance. And then fourthly, through inner promptings. Now, I want to say this very quickly about all four of these things. God's word, other people, circumstances, and inner promptings, convictions, or whispers. That's how God reveals himself to us. Guess which one you can fully rely on and the other three always need to be tested by. The one that is sure, that never changes. Circumstances change. Inner promptings change. Other people's opinion change. And it all ought to be tested by God's word. If you start to think about what should I do, how should my life look, how should I order my life to be this masterpiece, it starts with God's word. Now, that gets to the next place. There are four great sources of transformation that God uses in your life. And guess what they are? Exact same things. With one difference. Instead of that last one being inner promptings, the Scripture tells you, Philippians 2, 13 and other places, it's God who's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so that last one I'm going to call today inner power. God's word changes you. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 12, 2. Other people, I mentioned last week, that nothing other than God's word has had such a radical transformation activity in my life as other people who love me, sharpen me, and spur me on to loving good deeds. Circumstances. By the way, guess which one of these four God uses most often? The answer is circumstances. Why? Because you can't get away from circumstances. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you're in a circumstance, and every one of those circumstances is in God's sovereignty used to push you towards him. 
and then his inner power, which ultimately is the means through which transformation happens. Remember this. You are, uh, next blank, a work in progress that needs to be committed to the process that God uses to progress you. I say that because we ought to all be patient with one another, extend grace to one another. Let me tell you something. I really do believe if you hang around with me, you'll see some glorious moments. You know, I, 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 you know I, I've had places where folks came up to me later, and I heard through another story, man, I saw this guy handle a moment, and in this moment, I, I know that there have been folks who said, man, this guy at this moment really showed up, really did something, loved in a way when no one thought that, you know, I didn't think anybody was watching me. Somebody saw something that later on came back to me as a form of encouragement. And, and, and I, I'll tell you, you're also going to be around me sometimes. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to disappoint you. I'm going to offend you. I'm going to bother you. And I, I want you to know something, that the grace of God is working in my life, but I need grace from you while the grace of God keeps taking greater ground in my life. And so do you. I am not a done deal yet, but I am committed to the process, and I need you to encourage me when I get it right, admonish me when I'm missing, and love me through the whole thing. And that's my commitment to you. And what we ought to be about as men. We have to be, here's the blanks again, realize that we're a work in progress. I need to be committed to the process that God uses to progress us. Now, I told you, there's four things that God uses to change us. His word, are you reading it? Other people, are you connected to them? Circumstances, do you resent them? Or do you see everything as a means through which God can ultimately use to push you in your life? There's a guy named Dawson Troutman, founded a ministry called The Navigators. His wife was a much, very much like Christ because she was committed to God's word, surrounded in community, and there was no circumstance that could be thrown at her that she didn't squarely see as a gift from God, including when her very godly, influential husband drowned. And they came up to her and they said, Miss Troutman, we don't know how to tell you this, but your husband can't swim. He's dead. She quoted Psalm 115, verse 3. She looked at them, and she said, My God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And it will be good. That didn't mean she didn't grieve. She wasn't a cold woman, but she knew that. I, I love there's a story of a, of a king that a servant that almost was annoying in his optimism and sense that God was with him uh, and everything. And everything that happened, the servant would always say, It is good. Well, one day he was out with the king, and he was sharpening the king's knife, and he lopped the king's thumb off. And the king obviously was irate, and the servant said, it is good. And the king said, it is good. Are you nuts? I just lost my thumb. And he fired that servant into jail. So the servant was in jail. The king went back on another hunt one day. He was captured by a group of cannibals, and this cannibals were, was ready to cook him and eat him. And then they realized that he was deformed, and they were, in their tribal system, believed that they shouldn't eat somebody whose body was deformed, and so they released him. And this king was overwhelmed. He thought, it was indeed good that my thumb was cut off. And so he went back and he begged for mercy and forgiveness from the servant that he had put in jail. And he said, you've got to forgive me because I didn't believe you when you told me it was good that my thumb was cut off. And I'm so sorry I put you in jail. It was a lousy thing to do. It wasn't a good thing to do. And the servant said, no, it was a great thing to do. It was good because if I had been with you, they would have eaten me. (laughs) Right? See, now the point is, is that you've got to have that perspective, okay, in life, where a lot of, what's your authority about what's going to change you? A lot of people um, make culture their, their authority. Everybody else is doing it. 
That's what's going to change me. I'm going to be changed based on what culture does. And it's okay because everyone else is, does it. Or other people will make tradition their authority. I'm going to do it because it's what we've always done. Other people make their emotions their authority. It feels so right. So I'm going to do it. Other people make um, reason their authority. It's logical. And what I want to say to you guys is that each one of those things is a holistic healer is going to slap himself on you. And every one of those things is affected by the fall. Culture is defaced because it's not God's culture. Tradition has been screwed up because imperfect men have established it. Your reason isn't always God's reason. And you don't think like he does. And your emotions are not what should pull your train. God's word is. What's your authority? What are you using to make you that kind of man that would make you a masterpiece? God is about, and I, I, let me say this, fill in the blanks, because we're going to shut this down, uh, like we said, before 8 o'clock. Every time we try and control, gang, our future, our circumstances, or people around us, we are pursuing the lie that we can be or that we are God. What do I mean by that? I want to remind each of us that we are not God. We're never meant to be God, so it's not about me. And I am not the one that's got to control people around me. What's God want me to do with people around me? If I'm his masterpiece, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom for many. It's not about me to control my circumstances. If you've got stress in this room, I guarantee you do, because some of you got stressed because you can't control certain circumstances in the business world that are around you. And it just freaks you out, and you want to control it. And so you try and become God, and you try and control, you know, what happens in the Asian market, what happens in Wall Street, and you just can't. Do you know that God loves you, and it's going to be good if you'll just trust him, even when it's not okay? And you certainly can't control other people, can you? You can't control your kids. You can't control the way your wife responds to you loving her. You can't control how people perceive you, ultimately. And if you think that you can, you think that you're God, and you're going to be frustrated the rest of your life. God is about transforming your character, not increasing your comfort. I say that because Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. But abundant life is not the comfortable life. God does not promise to make you more prosperous. He doesn't promise to make you thinner. He doesn't promise to make you more beautiful. He doesn't promise to make you a better date. Or, you know, he does promise to make you a better person to share life with. But not necessarily somebody that is going to be the new, you know, bachelor on ABC. What he's saying right there is that God is more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. And God will let circumstances that aren't so happy come into your life if those circumstances are going to be the means to push you to him. And in God's sovereign design, there's no circumstance that he isn't ultimately about moving you towards him. Now look, that is why if you forget, if you forget God's purpose for your life, this is the last blank, if you forget God's purpose for your life, you're going to be frustrated every time you don't become more comfortable. You're going to shake your fist at God and be angry at God. Because you're going to go, God, if you love me, you'd make my life more comfortable. What did we start this whole morning by saying? You know what? If God loves you when you're 15, 
He's going to show you how to live your life that 25 years later you can look somebody in the eye and say, I'm so glad I've lived my life this way. And they're going to look at you when they're 70 and say, I wish I'd have done the same thing. Is it too late for me? Well, it's too late for you to live the first 69 years this way, but it's not too late for you to receive the gift that's going to make you God's masterpiece in his economy. See, God is not about our comfort. This is not your heaven. Can I say that one more time? This is not your heaven if you know Christ. If you know Christ, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. But I want to tell you something very sobering. If you don't know Christ, if you purpose to be your own God, this is as good as it ever is going to get. And that's a very sad thing. Now, I asked you what's your authority. Is it culture? Is it feelings? Is it emotion? Is it reason? Is it tradition? Or is it God's word? If you tell me God's word's your authority, that's going to help you have a perspective on other people, a perspective on circumstances, and a perspective on the power of God that works in you for his good pleasure, I want to ask you this. How much time are you getting around your authority? Because you will be what you're now becoming. And what are you spending time with daily to transform you from glory to glory? God's word, folks, is the key. People who don't have a Bible, I think, yeah, people who don't have a Bible are no worse off than those who have a Bible but never read it. In fact, I'm going to make a case they're better off. See, a lot of folks in this room own a Bible. But a lot of us, it's a bookmark, or, or you know, it, it keeps other books up, or it gathers dust. We don't really read it, or we read it so devotionally it doesn't transform our life. God wants to use his word to transform you. And the reason that people who don't have a Bible are better off than those of us who do don't read it is because we are accountable with what we've been given. Do you know that for the largely the first 2,000 years of Christendom, nobody but the priests were educated enough and allowed to read God's word? There are still certain denominations that will tell you, if you go back and read their doctrine, that to read the Bible apart from a priest is sin. God says, that's crazy. You read the Bible with your high priest, Jesus Christ, in relationship with him, and he'll illuminate and show you what it should mean, and you interpret it in the context of community, but you need to read it. Do you realize the gift that we've got living in 2004? What are you doing with it? Do you realize how accountable we are? Now, what I put in the back of here, and I end with this, if you'll turn it over, is a couple of different verses. You just remember, when circumstances aren't going well, you've got to have that perspective, that slave. Why am I in jail? Why am I sick? Why did I lose my thumb? It's good, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Plans for welfare, not for calamity. God wants us to be people of a perspective on circumstance because we look at his word. You know, some of you guys are good warriors. You know what worry is? If you can worry, you can meditate. God tells us to memorize his word and to memorize his word. If you're somebody that sits there and goes over and over and over, how can I control my circumstances and people and events? And you worry about that. What God wants you to do is get out of the idea that you're God, start trusting him as him being God, and meditate on his word that will give you the perspective that this circumstance or person is there to make you more like Christ so you can be more glorious in the masterpiece that he wants. But you cannot just read the Bible as some little rabbit's foot and leave it. We're not to be just hearers of the word that delude ourselves, but doers of the word. How can you start to make the Bible come alive to you? The answer is, I've given you seven questions that I often use when I'm reading a simple text of Scripture. And I go, Lord, I'm not going to leave here until I get something out of this that is helpful and useful to me. Is there something here that I need to learn about who God is, who Christ is, about what truth is? Is there an example for me to follow? And you can read the rest of it. I'm not going to bother you. When you get down to number seven, though, it says, is there a difficulty here to further explore? Can I tell you what I love to do? I love to spend time with other men that are spending time in God's Word that get hung up on a place of Scripture that just can't make sense out of. 
who call me and say, Ty, can you or somebody on the staff team, can you or somebody who's been journeying with Christ longer explain this part of the Bible to me because I know God gave it to me for a reason. I promise you that we will commit to you to spend whatever time we need to as a team of folks who, by the grace of God, have been around his word a little longer. If you read that Bible and you get hung up or confused on something, you ask us to spend time with you and you will get it. Because we want to share with you what God, by his grace, is doing in our life and showing us. Now, here's how you end all these things when you make those observations with a simple, so what? What am I going to do with this? What's the action step? In your book, The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren did put this down in a way that I thought was as good as I'd ever seen it. And I'm going to give it to you. You can read it in the weeks ahead as you read these chapters, but here they come. Three things. After you get through making those seven observations and find out which one there is, you're not done with your Bible that's going to transform you and make you that masterpiece until you ask yourself, so what? Meaning this. Your action step. What's my action going to be in light of what I just read? Because God's going to change me, not because I read this as a magic you know, rabbit's foot that I rub and move forward without it impacting my life. But God wants it to take root in my life and change me. And so he does this. Pretty well, well done. He said your action step ought to be personal. In other words, it ought to involve you. It should not be, that's a good one. I can't wait for my wife to apply this to her life. Okay? If your action step doesn't involve you, you got the wrong action step. Secondly, your action step ought to be practical. Something you can do. Believe God more. Memorize this verse. Meditate on this. Serve this person. Share this resource. About you, that's practical. And then the last thing is it ought to be provable. Which is to say, there ought to be some deadline attached to it. By noon today, I will call that brother I am hacked off at and say, we've got to get together. Because our relationship matters. And so I'm going to say, I will prove that I'm applying this to my life, because I'm going to say, this is going to happen by then. And don't say, for the next 40 years, I will. Say, today, I will. And if you get the same action step tomorrow, then do it again. Every action step changes your relationship with God, your relationship with others, or your character. And when those three things change, baby, you're going to be a high-profile masterpiece. Father, I thank you for these men. May your grace continue to work in their life as it needs to in mine. May we love each other, extend each other um, care and tenderness as we blow it, as we deface your glory. We thank you, Lord, that you never stop reworking us until our life is a masterpiece. We thank you that even at the grave is when you finally do the final transformation work, transforming work in our life, and you finish what we lack. But right now, we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you will reward us, honor us, and glorify yourself in us inasmuch as we participate with you in this moment. So, Father, help us to do that. Thank you for these men. I pray that grace prevails in this room in the way our lives look and in the way we love and accept each other on the journey. Father, would you let guys not leave this room without having to deal honestly about what their authority is? And if it's God's word, would you convict them that they need to be in it and let it be in them in an actionable way for your glory because it's not about us. Have a great week, guys. We'll see you next week.